0: welcome this morning. Uh, As you just heard, we are going to uh, now be moving into the story of Joseph. And so please have your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at Genesis 37 through 41. Genesis 37 through 41. When was the last time something really bad happened to you? I don't just mean that... You had a bad day. Or you just didn't feel well. I'm referring to something far more significant. When was the last time that something so bad happened to you that you felt like you just couldn't continue? You couldn't go on. Perhaps you lost your job. And as you drove home, you realized You no longer had any way to support your family. Or perhaps you've wept on the floor, unable to stop because you miscarried and you lost that child that you were so looking forward to. Maybe you came home from work one day only to discover that your spouse had left you. In those moments, it's as if, isn't it? A black storm cloud just hovers over your head following you around, unrelenting and without mercy. The pain, it feels so unbearable. The hurt just feels unpardonable. And the shock, well, it's just unforgettable. Perhaps the most excruciating thing, though, about these dark moments in our lives and They are dark, aren't they? Perhaps the worst thing is that sometimes you feel like, God, he's just not there anymore. And it feels like, if it feels like he isn't there, you're tempted to wonder if he really has a plan, whether he has your good in mind, and whether his purposes are really for you and not against you. What are we to do as Christians, as followers of Christ? What are we to do in those moments? What are we to do when suddenly, maybe unexpectedly, something horrific happens to us? What are we to do? Moments of despair and agony Grief, and perhaps depression. One option is to become bitter, angry at God, to give up on believing that He is a God who is sovereign, working out His will for our good. But there's another road, there's another option, one that I would encourage you to travel down instead as hard as it is, in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your pain, you pray to God that though you don't understand why this is happening and why he has brought so much calamity into your life, you will trust in his sovereign plan for you because you know, even if you don't feel it, you know from Scripture that He has your good in mind and that He is with you. Few you take this road. I mean, as you look out, I think all of us could think of friends or family that we have known one moment they were praising God, and the next moment, they're gone. They don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. Few take this road of trusting in divine providence. Most, in those dark moments, hate God. They distrust God, and they walk away from God. But those who press on, as I am encouraging you to do... Those who press on do so, not because they can see ahead any better. And listen to this. This is really important. You don't press on because somehow your vision is somehow better than the person who abandoned the path. this the stormy fog is still there. It still blinds you as much as the other person. So you press on instead because you know that behind this stormy cloud is a God who has good purposes. And these good purposes are yet to come. And you worship a God who has put this Very storm above you for the purpose of bringing those good purposes to pass. People, this can only be done if you believe the Word of God. Because in those moments, you won't feel that way. You won't you will feel like abandoning the road. Those who stay on the road do so because despite the storm above them and everything they see, they know God's promises in God's word. Isn't this exactly what the story of Joseph teaches us? It's a wonderful story, isn't it? Here's a man that God put through some of the worst storms in life. The darkest of clouds, and yet Joseph, by God's grace, trusted in God's sovereign plan. He knew that though it felt like God had abandoned him, God was actually with him. If you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear what I'm about to say next. Though so many times it felt like he had reached the end of the road, in reality, God had ordained even these terrible, evil events to bring about the great redemption of his people. I'm going to say that one more time. Though so many times it felt like Joseph had reached the end of the road, in reality, God had ordained even these terrible, evil events To bring about the great redemption for his people. That is the rest of Genesis for you. But we're going to spend more time than that looking at the text. So let's do that. In the next two sermons, we're going to finish the book of Genesis, believe it or not, by looking at the life of Joseph. Thank you for that. This morning, we're going to focus on chapters 37 through 41. And next week, we are going to then look at the second half of the life of Joseph. Though I wish we could just stay here and make a day of it and finish the whole life at once. We'll break this into two Sundays. The story of Joseph really picks up by returning us to the story of Jacob. Now, if you remember from last time, and if you look with me at Genesis 37... Look there at the, beginning of the, at the beginning of the chapter. Jacob's life, remember, it's been a very difficult one. We saw that last week. The man was deceptive to the core. Though God did an amazing work of bringing about sanctification in his life. But as is so often the case, sons take after their fathers, don't they? For better or for worse. And this is exactly what happens with Jacob's sons. He has 12 sons, and these 12 sons are going to really be the pillars of future Israel. So he has 12 sons, and these sons, though, they're very, very wicked. One of them, however, more or less proves to be the exception to the rule, though he's he's not perfect by any means. And his name is Joseph. Joseph is just 17 years old. He's a teenager when the story starts. What makes Joseph so unique is is that he really is his father's favorite. We see that right away, don't we, in the story. He's his father's favorite by far. And this isn't a private matter. Everybody knows it. It's not a secret. In fact, this favoritism is so bad, and it runs so deep, and it's so obvious that his brothers, they just hate Joseph. They hate him. Such favoritism is visible, too, for the text says in in Genesis 37 that Jacob gave Joseph and Joseph alone a colorful robe. In other words, Jacob made it abundantly clear that this was his favorite son, the one who would receive his greatest blessings and love as a result his brothers just despised Joseph every time they saw him it reminded them of this the text says they the text actually says they hated him they hated him and they hated him so much that they could not speak peacefully to him So every time they had an encounter with Joseph, their hatred showed itself in their antagonism towards their brother. Joseph, though, didn't help the situation. We learn in verse 2 that Joseph tattled on his brothers, bringing his father a bad report. And to make matters worse, Joseph tells his brothers he has a dream. And this dream means that his brothers will one day bow down to him and serve him. I think, keep in mind, this is a dream from the Lord. And so the Lord is going to use this in tremendous ways. This dream, in many ways, tells what's about to happen. But Joseph, in the way he tells his brothers, really does display his immaturity. But he doesn't just have one dream. He has a second dream. Apparently, Joseph didn't learn from the first time. So he tells them again about this other dream. One in which the sun, which represents his father, and the moon, which represents his mother, and the 11 stars representing his brothers, they all come before Joseph, and they bow down to him. At this point, even Joseph's father feels put off. and As you would have guessed, his brothers are filled with jealousy. One day, Joseph goes out to the field to meet his brothers in order once again to give his father an update on their progress. I can only imagine that his brothers must have just despised this. His brothers, seeing Joseph from afar, dazzling bright in that colorful coat of his believe that their opportunity has finally come to act upon their jealousy and to put an end to this whole matter. So they decided together that they would kill Joseph. They would kill him. Do you realize just how bad this this hatred runs deep here. I mean, this is not a, a mere bickering between siblings. This is not a mere civ, uh, sibling rivalry. Now they hate Joseph. They hate him so much, and their hearts are so wicked that the first opportunity they have, they are going to kill him their own brother. Reuben, however, rescues Joseph. Look at verse 21. Reuben pleads with his brothers not to kill Joseph, but instead to throw him into a pit. Reuben's plan, as we find out, is to return later on and to take Joseph back to his father Reuben is persuasive enough that his brothers strip Joseph of his coat and they throw him in a pit that has no water. This is is pretty bad. But things get worse, a lot worse. Because when Reuben leaves, Judah convinces his brothers that they would profit far better by selling Joseph instead of killing him, selling him to this this caravan of Ishmaelites as a slave. This caravan, by the way, is on its way to Egypt. When Reuben returns and finds out and sees what they have done, the man tears his clothes apart and he exclaims, the boy is gone. And I, where shall I go? Is that a confusing statement to you? Perhaps up to this point, you thought Reuben was the kind one, rescuing his brother, right? But Reuben's response tells us something very different. If you remember back to Genesis 35, 22, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 35, verse 22... Reuben was not in good standing with his father. Why? Well, it was very simple. Reuben had slept with his father's concubine. And not just that, but everybody, the text says everybody in Israel knew it. I mean, talk about a way to bring tremendous shame upon your family. Given this, Reuben was very much trying to recover the goodwill of his father. Later, when Reuben finds out that Joseph has been sold, notice his words. His concern is not for Joseph's well-being, is it? Instead, it's for himself. He cries out, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? You see? Clearly, Reuben is out for himself. And as you can see here, this is just a terrible punch of brothers. In the end, his brothers deceive their father. Notice the irony, by the way. There's a lot of irony in this story. Jacob has quite a history of deception. We've seen that. And here, he's going to be deceived himself by his own sons, So they deceive their father. How so? They hold up Joseph's robe, which they had dipped in goat's blood, giving the impression that Joseph was killed by some wild animal. Again, notice the irony here. Do you remember back to the story of Jacob? Do you remember that it was goat's hair that Jacob covered himself in when he pretended to be Esau? They're so heartless at this point that they not only break this news to their father, they put on a charade. They pretend they're grieved with their father too. By the way, we we don't have time to go into Genesis 38, though I wish we could, but if you want to catch a glimpse at just how wicked Joseph's brothers are, go home today and read this story about Judah, specifically, and his sons. And you will get a, a glimpse at how wicked this family has become. Well, you, could have, you can imagine, can't you, how Joseph must have felt. He was betrayed by his own brothers. Only to be sold as a slave. He must have thought, I will never see my father again. He's taken away to a foreign land, a people that worship other gods that that Joseph knows are not true. And rather than being under his father's favor and blessing, instead, he's a slave. But Genesis 39, look there with me. Genesis 39, verse 2, it tells us something so important. Just one small detail. It says that God was with Joseph. In other words, though everything seemed like Joseph's life was now over, God had not abandoned Joseph. God sees to it that Joseph is sold to Potiphar, who's Pharaoh's captain of the guard, and as a result, Joseph becomes a very successful man. Listen, this is Genesis 39, verse 3. I want you to listen to this. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. What's the result of this? The result was that Joseph was put in charge of Potiphar's entire household. With Joseph in charge, the Lord then blesses, not just Joseph and everything he does, but the entire Egyptian's household for Joseph's sake. And you have to realize that if you were one of the servants in this household, you would have noticed something is changing here. Suddenly, things are going extremely well for this house. It's flourishing. And of all the households in Egypt, this one seems to be rising to the top ever since Joseph came. But Joseph's character is about to be tested, isn't it? His integrity is about to be tested. Genesis 39.6 says that Joseph, isn't it interesting how Scripture so often with different men and women will give us indicators as to their physical looks? It's done that before with Sarah, Rebecca. Here it says, Joseph was a handsome man. He was good-looking. Potiphar's wife, therefore, had to have him. On several occasions, she tried to seduce him, but Joseph Refused. Not just once. you understand this? This, isn't, this just, didn't just happen one time. This was a constant temptation. He refused again and again and again. And things kept building. Notice his reasons. By the way, this is just a side note. But in your fight against sin... One of the the best things you could do is to think through it. Notice how Joseph brilliantly uses his mind in the midst of a very physical temptation, uses his mind to think about what is right here. Number one, Potiphar has put him in charge. So how could he then betray his master? Especially given how much he has blessed Joseph. Number two, Joseph's loyalty is with God. He's a Hebrew in the midst of Egyptians. He serves and worships the one true God. How then, Could he betray God by doing this, what the text says, is a very wicked thing? You see his his thinking through all of this? I love this response by Joseph. It's so revealing. In that moment, Joseph doesn't... Think about all the temptations he could have had in that moment. Joseph, he doesn't use his past trials... How bad things have been for him. He doesn't, he doesn't use that to somehow justify this sin. Isn't that often the case? Things have gone so badly for me, I deserve just this. He doesn't do that. He also doesn't allow his good fortune now to replace his loyalty to God. In other words, in the midst of all his wealth and prosperity, he does not put his identity in those things or his status. He sees through them to what's more important. But also, he doesn't allow the very strong sexual temptation to have the best of him, does he? Notice on how many levels here Joseph could have somehow rationalized his sin. His potential sin, that is. Instead, Joseph recognizes sin for exactly what it is. And in the heat of temptation, he follows God instead. So Joseph, what does he do? He flees. Always a probably the most brilliant thing to do in the midst of sin, he flees from Potiphar's wife. Literally, physically, runs away. If that were you or I, perhaps we would have expected God at this point to reward our obedience. Right? That's not what happens, is it? God doesn't necessarily do that. He's not immediately. Potiphar's wife, being quite conniving, she lies. She takes Joseph's garment and she screams. You see where this is going, don't you? She screams. And when attention is drawn to herself, she then pretends that she... She's the one who's been assaulted. This Hebrew assaulted me. So Potiphar throws Joseph in prison. If, we're to, if we were to finish this story, we might conclude, "Well, this this is the end. This is the end. The story has." has come to a stopping point. There is no hope. Certainly everything looks as if Joseph has been abandoned by God. His circumstances could not be worse. But do you know what the text says next? Look at Genesis 39, verse 21. Genesis 39, verse 21. What does it say again? But the Lord was with Joseph. And he showed him steadfast love. And you might be thinking to yourself, if you had not heard this story before, oh, this must mean Joseph gets out of this whole situation, right? Steadfast love from the Lord. The Lord's with him. Steadfast love means prison. The Lord's with him means prison. What a message that is! A very prosperity driven culture that we live in. God had not abandoned Joseph. No, God was with him. He was with him. Not even in prison. Prison itself couldn't keep God from Joseph. Not even a dark, dreary, black cell. God continues to be with Joseph, to even prosper him, in prison out of all places and to work out his sovereign plan for Joseph and for his chosen people. So God prospers Joseph once more. This time, interestingly enough, notice how each time it's with a leader, this time with the keeper of the prison, and Joseph is put in command of all the prisoners. And again, we see a pattern. Whatever Joseph did, God blessed. One night, though, God gave two dreams to two prisoners, which brings us to Genesis 40. Two dreams to two prisoners. One, a cupbearer to Pharaoh, and the other, a baker. Keep in mind that Joseph is in a particular location within the prison. For, For those who served closely or somewhat closely to Pharaoh. These two dreams, though, what are we to make of them? What I want you to pay attention to, I'm not going to go into all the details of the dreams here. I'll leave that to you in your own study. But what I want you to pay attention to is how God gives Joseph the ability to interpret these dreams. And these dreams really will be a means of Joseph's future liberation from prison. Though at this point, Joseph probably doesn't realize that or know it. In Genesis 40, the the cupbearer's dream means that he is going to be elevated in the future once again to the king's side. That's good news, especially if you're in prison. But what about the baker? The baker's dream means that Well, he's going to be lifted up, but it's going to be his head. In other words, he's going to be executed. A very, very different dream. And this is exactly, this is exactly what happens next. Sadly, though, the cupbearer fails to mention to Pharaoh that it was Joseph who had given the interpretation of these dreams. In the midst of what must have been joy and excitement to be freed and liberated and keep his head on his shoulders, he forgets about Joseph. And get this. The text says two years went by. Two years, people. No end in sight until one evening when the Pharaoh himself had two dreams, things changed. What were Pharaoh's two dreams? And what were these dreams about? In Genesis 41, we are told about both of these dreams. Number one, Pharaoh has a dream, this first dream, that he is standing by the Nile when something crazy happens. Seven cows and not just any cows but attractive cows come up and they're feeding on the grass but then something horrific happens seven ugly starving cows come up and they eat the plump cows that's dream number 1 keep that in mind dream number 2 seven ears of grain notice the number 7 again plump good Grow on on one stalk. But then seven thin, blighted ears grow up and they swallow up the other seven good ones. Quite strange, isn't it? What is going on? What are we to make of these dreams? Well, there's a big problem. There's a very, very big problem. Pharaoh, he can't find anybody to interpret these dreams. In fact, he brings in his own wise men and his own magicians. They have no clue. They can't, they can't make sense of it. They don't know what it means. But, notice how God works in such small details. Suddenly the cup pair... He must have been just standing there. And suddenly he he realizes, wait a minute. I had a dream. That's how I got back here. And there's a man who interpreted my dream, and he was right. And his name's Joseph. Genesis 41, 16 says, if you look there with me, Pharaoh brings Joseph out of prison at once because perhaps this is the one, this is the man who's going to interpret his dream. And listen to what Joseph says in response. Joseph answered Pharaoh. This is Pharaoh's telling him, Can't, I've had a dream. Are you going to interpret my dream? What does Joseph say in this pivotal moment? Everything hangs on this word. This sentence, what is he going to say to Pharaoh? Here it is. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. You have to understand that Joseph, think of the context he's in. He is in the midst of a very pagan, polytheistic, Egyptian world. And this is what he says in front of not just anyone, but in front of Pharaoh himself. Joseph has the boldness to say that the God that he worships as a Hebrew is the one who speaks. and the one who will interpret the dream. God himself will give Pharaoh the interpretation. In the midst of a world of gods that stood there, it looked pretty, but could not talk. Joseph comes into the room and says, My God speaks. Listen. Pharaoh's magicians and wise men, they could not do what the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will now do. He is the one who gave Pharaoh these dreams, and he is the one who will now give Pharaoh the interpretation. It's apparent that Joseph is a man who trusts not in himself, but in God. And what a remarkable statement this is in light of everything Joseph has been through. So Joseph tells Pharaoh that these dreams, he has the interpretation, and these dreams will mean that there will be seven good years full of plentiful harvest, but after that, there are coming seven terrible years, years of famine. And if Pharaoh is wise, notice his boldness, Joseph can only say this if he's speaking with the authority of God. Joseph says to Pharaoh, appoint elders, overseers, who will make sure that the people are taken care of, prepared, preparing them for what is about to happen, storing food so that they don't starve. Genesis 41, 25 says, God was revealing to Pharaoh what he was about to do. Did you hear that? In case you missed it, look a couple verses down at Genesis 41, verse 32. What does it say? It says the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. This whole thing, famine and all, is God's will being played out, Pharaoh. And now Joseph is right in the middle of it. How then will Pharaoh respond? Pharaoh sees that Joseph, this is such a fascinating verse. Maybe you can go home and study what what this may mean. Joseph, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, Joseph has the spirit of the Lord Perhaps Pharaoh's thinking in his own context, but clearly we know Joseph has the spirit of the Lord. So he makes Joseph the man who will redeem the people by storing up food in preparation for this famine to come. Do you understand how remarkable this is? With the exception of Pharaoh, there is no man in all of Egypt that is now as powerful as Joseph. You thought being a slave in Potiphar's house was something. Try Pharaoh's right hand man. Now comes the the most important question. Who is behind all of this? Who is behind Joseph being sold as a slave by his wicked brothers? Who is behind Joseph winning Potiphar's favor? Who is behind Joseph being thrown in prison for years and years? Who is behind Joseph interpreting the dreams of of Pharaoh? You see, we only want to look at the good things and say, there's God. But who's behind Joseph? These terrible, wicked things that happened to Joseph. Who is behind all of this? God. God is behind this entire story. God is behind every single step, for He has ordained everything. Both Joseph's cell. In his palace, the beatings he received as a slave, and now his rule over all of Egypt. Why? Why? Listen, in order to redeem his. God has put Joseph through hell because in doing so, it will be Joseph whom God will use to store up food so that not only the Egyptians survive... But the chosen people of God, the Hebrews. That's where this story is going. Don't you see? Don't you see? God's providence, it is everywhere. We don't see it, but it's everywhere. He is making sure his promises to Abraham don't fall to the ground and die. The offspring of Abraham will be preserved through Joseph. People, if you think the story of Joseph is something, you haven't seen anything yet. Do you realize that the God who ordained all of this so that his covenant promises to Abraham Would continue, has done far more for you through Jesus Christ. Joseph looks at you and he is so jealous. Do you know that? Again and again through this story, we hear that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph to make sure his redemptive plans came true even through evil, evil intentions of others. Is it any surprise then that when Christ comes to redeem us, to ransom, to liberate, to atone for us, He is called Emmanuel, God with us. He is not a God who is far off, distant, uninvolved. No, He is a God who has stooped down. As John Calvin loved to say, speaking like a father speaking baby talk to his children. Making himself known to us. He is a God who has brought about his redemptive plans through wicked, wicked individuals who put Jesus to death on a cross. He is a God who is with us and he has shown this most by sending Jesus. And so Jesus can say, before he ascends to the right hand of his Father, behold, I am with you always, to the very end of the age. So I return again, as we close, to your daily lives. When tragedy strikes, when hardship comes, at us like a train When all seems lost, when it feels like God is gone, he's silent, he's absent, what do you do? What do you think? What do you believe? Perhaps the answer is best found, not in my words, but in the words of a hymn by William Cooper. I love this hymn. called God's mysterious providence. We've sung it before. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he writhes upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints. Is that you this morning? Fearful saints. Fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread. Big with mercy. They shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err to and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Let's pray. God, you are the God who gives dreams, but you don't remain silent. You speak and you are your own interpreter. Lord, we struggle so often to see Your hand, Your providence at work. May we be reminded this morning of Your great redemptive plan through Christ and that You are for us. That You have our good in mind even when You bring upon us a bitter bud. Lord, we know that the flower to come will be sweet indeed. It's in the name of your precious Son we pray. Amen.